to all of you from Denver. How are you apples doing anyway today? I hope fine. You want to do it. I don't know whether you've ever been called apples or not, but uh, God says that the church is the apple of his eye, and I guess that makes us all at least uh, pieces of apples anyway. Now, last time I spoke, we concluded the book of Hosea, and uh, I want to review that for just a moment. The word Hosea means God saves, uh, which seems to be a, a bit of a paradox in a way when you begin to read the book of Hosea, and uh, there are awful, terrible things happening there. But the point being, by the time you end it, that God is going to save us in spite of all the troubles, the frustrations and difficulties we have. And I reminded us that Romans 11:26 says, "All Israel shall be saved." Also, John 3:16 through 17 said that Christ did not to con- come to condemn the world, but through Him the world might be saved. So we can never lose sight of the fact that God is going to come through this successfully. And Hosea was well named. God will save. It is going to happen. To us, the picture may seem grim at times, uh, and right now, certainly, to the Church of God and the confusion it's in, it does seem pretty grim. But we know that God's Word cannot be broken and that He will save. He names things what they are, and Hosea was well named in spite of the problems. That could be tied a little bit uh, with Zechariah, where he tells the rubber bell there, not by might, not by human strength, but by my spirit, says the Eternal. It is God who is going to do this. We can't save ourselves, and salvation is not by works, but by grace through faith, the grace of God upon us. Now, we're created under good works, so we won't get on into that, but we understand that salvation is of God, not of man. Now, Hosea outlines the central theme of the problem that we face today. That problem could be defined, I think, pretty quickly as idolatry, as expressed by harlotry. The worship of ourselves, the worship of what we wish, above the worship of God. Because each man goes his own way, leans to his own understanding, does his own thing, and does not pay enough attention to what God is doing. That's the problem we have. And the first commandment warns against idolatry. To put him first in everything. So that's why God did what he did with Hosea and told him to go marry a harlot because the picture was of the church going its own way into harlotry, which was ultimately idolatry. Now, I won't review all of the book of Hosea, but I want to remind us again of the very last verse of the book. Who is wise, and he shall understand these things? I know I read them for many years, off and on, studied them in high school and in college, and didn't really understand what this was all about. But I think God is beginning to show us now what the understanding is. Who is prudent, and he shall know them. 
I mean, it seems pretty straightforward here if you just consider Israel and uh, they went into harlotry and adultery and so on and so forth. If we can set ourselves aside and say this refers to Israel, then we can feel good about ourselves. But that's the understanding that all kinds of people have had, if you want to read the commentaries. But we understand that the church is the apple of God's eye. And the concern first with him is for the leaders of Israel, which is what we are here to become. He's working with the leaders first. So the world can understand the analogy here of physical Israel, but what about spiritual Israel, which is being designed as the leader? That's where some wisdom understanding has to come in that is beyond what even this world understands. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the just shall walk in them, but the transgressors shall fall therein. So it's important to understand what is going on here. And we, the church, are the ones who are supposedly, and are, walking after Christ. Walk as he walked. So Hosea is a work in progress. We need to understand and be sure we are following the ways of God. The salvation of the church is a work in progress. Though, in many ways, to us it might not seem like it at the moment. But it is happening. God knows exactly what he's doing, in other words. Now, Hosea defines the overall problem in the church, and how does God go about solving that problem that we have in the church today? Pressure. Pressure is how he's solving it. He's putting incredible pressure on us. And we'll see a little later on in the book of Joel what that pressure is supposed to lead us to do. Now, the scattering that is occurring, Hosea talks about. I will destroy your mother. The daughters will not go unpunished. And we see the daughters receiving their problems today, and they are beginning to scatter. But the book of Joel ties this to the soon-to-follow day of the Lord. The time element is very, very important. Because as we shall see, Joel is a very, very stern wake-up call. I call it the Tin Hut book. Uh, attention, wake up. Now there's a reason the persecution does not yet come from the outside. What does persecution do from the outside? It binds you together. We often wondered over the years, when will the persecution from the outside start? Well, not until the persecution from the inside is over and the church is completely scattered. Because the persecution from the inside blows apart, persecution from the outside causes unity. And it is not God's purpose at this point to unify the church yet. Therefore, that persecution hasn't come. But I will assure you, based on many scriptures, it will come in due course. Hosea means God will save. Well, think about that a minute. What is the first step that God would have to take in order to save? What's the first lesson we have to get in order for God to save the church? Well, right 
on the heels of the book of Hosea comes the book of Joel. It is entitled, Joel means, that is, The Lord is God. See how that fits so well? God will say, but what's the first lesson? We've got to know who's in charge here. The Lord is God. And it is a very, very powerful book. Now before we get right into that, I want to go back to Isaiah 40, because he says essentially the same thing back in here in a little bit different context. In Isaiah 40, he begins by saying, Comfort you, comfort you, my people, says your God. Now we're in times of great stress. How can we be comforted? Now this is going to tie so closely to John's series he's beginning on the providence of God, it's almost scary. And I hope I don't walk on where he's headed, but if I do, I'm sure I'll approach it from a different angle, and it will probably help and assist what he is getting across instead of detract from it. I, at least I hope that, because it comes next in the order of where I was headed, and it certainly seems to tie in. And all this trouble, in other words, that we're in, how can it look good? How can we be comforted? Because there's an awful lot of confusion and frustration reigning in the church of God today. Speak comfortably to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has reserved, received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So this punishment, this tribulation, this trial, this spiritual persecution that we have, and scattering that we have been dealing with, is going to be over. He says, The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, Prepare you the way of the Lord, and make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So preparing the way for Christ is the critical and key issue. That is what we have been stressing in this particular organization for since its inception. It's preparing the bride. We feel that that is the most important thing that can be done here in order to prepare the way for Christ because he needs his bride ready. And that is a key issue. When he returns, she had best be ready. And he will get her ready. But right now, a great deal of pressure is on the church, which is supposed to be turning us and getting us ready. And if we don't respond, the pressure will get greater. He says, verse 5, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. So speaking of his return here, and he tells us down in verse 9, You that bring good tidings, get up to the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you that bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. That's a different way of saying the Lord is God. We need to understand who God is and what he is doing now. The emphasis, the attention, has to turn to God. It's so easy to get frustrated with what might be happening in our personal lives or what might be happening in the organization we happen to be in or what might be happening to the church as a whole. 
And certainly we should take a look at those because they're instructive in what we should be doing in response. But the real key is beholding God. It's getting the first lesson that he is God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Now, I want to tie that with Revelation 11 for a moment. Revelation 11 and verse 18. Because it talks about what he will do when he returns. The nations were angry, and your wrath is come. And the time of the dead, that they should be judged, and that you should give reward to the servants, the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear your name, small and great, and should destroy them which destroy the earth. So he's talking about two things here in Isaiah 40 and verse 10. He's coming to reward the saints. They will rise in the moment in a flash, twinkling of an eye, and the dead in Christ rising first, and they which, we which are alive and remain will also be changed and receive that reward. But his work then is before him. So in the sequence, he deals first with the church, with the first resurrection. That's why it is important for us to get the lesson now. His work then will be before him to save all Israel or at least those who survive into the millennium, and then subsequently those in the great white throne judgment. That is the work that will be before him. But the work that he's doing now is with you and me. The restitution of all things begins with the leadership of Israel. He is supposed to be, he is currently restoring his mind, his attitude, his thoughts, in us this is the time for our salvation now it's time for us to behold God to consider what he is doing and not let this time slip by us because it can happen and the message is going to get very very strong in the book of Joel about this so he says this is what he's going to do his work is before him once he gets the church deal dealt with the bride prepared Christ returns marries her then our work at that point will be before us with him. And he will, in verse 11 it says here, he shall lead his flock like a shepherd, he shall gather the lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead those that are with young. But before that, there is great, great trouble coming. And Isaiah starts talking about that right after this. He talks about God, and who has done the creating who has set this heavens there? Same kind of language he used with Job. See, that's what Job was all about. Ten hot, Job. I'm here. You're there. I'm God. You're man. Behold, you're God, Job. And the same message comes to us here, and doesn't it address us directly as those who will be rewarded when he returns? Then he says in verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as a small dust of the balance. Uh, verse 17, All nations before him are as nothing. Verse 25, well, let's see, 23, He that brings the princes to nothing. Verse 25, To whom then will you liken me? But who shall be my equal? 
says the Holy One. Verse 27, Why say you, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God? This doesn't affect me, people will say. But I think we have to take it personal, brethren. Verse 29, He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. So no, how, no matter how young and muscular and in shape you think you are, God says, you will utterly fail. He is the answer, and our attention has to be on him. Now we can go back toward the book of Joel. turn also while I'm back this way I had another reference here in Jeremiah 16 I'll turn back and read that one real quickly Jeremiah 16 and verse 21 therefore behold I will this once cause them to know I will cause them to know my hand and my might and they shall know that my name is the Lord. So as we get into the book of Joel, which is entitled, The Lord is God, we can see from other scriptures that this is a very, very important first lesson for us to get. And I only gave you Isaiah 40 and Jeremiah 16, but there are plenty of other scriptures which indicate this same thing. The book of Joel, then, details how God will prove he is God once and for all. And he addresses the church throughout the book. He addresses Israel as a whole, but the church as the leaders over and over again. Now, the problem is that the church is in danger of going into the fury of the last three and a half years of the great tribulation on man. We are in great danger if we do not listen to what Joel says. Now let's go into it. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel, or Pethuel, Hear this, you old men, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land, has this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? What I am about to tell you, will you be able to find anyone that can remember anything like you're about to hear about? Tell you your children of it, let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Now he's speaking to the end time generation, because that's the generation this is going to be reached upon. And this is something that will be told on into the millennium, generation after generation. The sins of the past, other scriptures say, will not be remembered. But what Joel is about to tell us about is something that will be remembered on down the line. Now let's turn to Jeremiah 23. When John 
started the series on the providence of God. He told about Israel coming out of Egypt and how research had shown that that breach in the Red Sea had to be wide enough, probably up to two miles wide. I had always thought it was a fairly narrow, narrow corridor, but when you put the numbers in there, it had to be a monstrous cavity for them to all go through in that amount of time. And what was the result of that? They made songs about it. David wrote psalms about it. It's mentioned throughout the Old Testament. It's rehearsed several times in the New Testament. It has been a landmark thing that God did to bring Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. It's something that has been told generation after generation after generation until this day. And even we rehearse it throughout the year, and especially at Passover time. We head back to Exodus, and somebody will go through that particular section of Scripture, it seems, every year. And well, they should. Because it showed those people that the Lord was God. But Egypt's magicians could not perform what God could perform. And Pharaoh and all his army drowned when that came together. What an epic thing it was that we've remembered forever and ever. Well, let's pick up Jeremiah 23. And this is one that has been quoted very, very frequently in God's church in the last 10 or 12 years. And I'm sure virtually everyone within hearing of my voice today probably have it tied together with Ezekiel 34, uh, keyed in you know, as a, as a companion scripture, because that jumps all over the ministry. And this one does too. Woe me to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. Now this is background. We're going to read some of the same language into the book of Joel. But I want to tie together what is happening in the church today with what God says is just about to be unleashed. Therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, says the Lord. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds and they shall be fruitful and increase. So when this is done, only a remnant will be drawn back. Then God will set up righteous shepherds, he says. Verse 7, Therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives. Now listen to this. This is a bomb. Therefore, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives, which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But, this is what they will say. The Lord lives which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries whither I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. This saga, this story that we are about to read about in the book of Joel will so far eclipse what happened coming out of Egypt that they will no more even refer to the Exodus. 
this is going to be such a greater deliverance with such greater power. The Exodus only destroyed the empire of Egypt. This is going to destroy every empire on earth before it is finished. A worldwide deliverance. Verse 9, My heart within me is broken because of the prophets. All my bones shake. This is a fearful thing that is approaching. I am like a drunken man and like a man whom wine has overcome because of the Lord. The day of the Lord. And because of the words of His holiness. Or I think the New King James says, His holy words. And then he goes on and jumps on the ministers some more. Verse 20 says, In the latter days you shall consider it or understand it perfectly. Up until we began to enter this era of the end, and these events began to be happening in the church, and we can see them, the storm clouds rising in the world, we didn't understand it perfectly. But now we're beginning to get a clearer picture of what God is doing and is about to do. He ties it together with the apostasy, with the misuse and abuse of the sheep today, and then he goes right on and talks about the day of the Lord. Now what's my point? Or what's God's point here? The point is that this mess in the church is going to have the day of the Lord fall right on its heels. In other words, we're there, folks. It's upon us. When the scattering is finished, the rebuilding will begin. And we're going to see that very clearly and unequivocally before we finish this series. Because it's all recorded in here. And it gets more interesting and more interesting as you move on through these books because one builds upon the other. Certain themes go all the way through, but they build and they build and they build. But he ties these things together in these chapters that we've just examined very closely to show that one follows the other. Then he gets into the story in Joel. We've seen that we're supposed to tell it to our children and children's children. Is there anybody around who's seen such an event? Well, no. Then he, in verse 4, he begins to launch into what is about to happen. And on a spiritual level, which is already happening within God's church. Because as I said before, he deals with the leaders first. And we're to be the leaders. The 144,000 are being selected. That which the pommel worm has left, the locust has eaten. That which the locust has left, has the canker worm eaten. And that which the canker worm has left, has the caterpillar eaten. So, famine. Now, Amos made it clear that this wasn't just talking about the physical famine, but at 8.11 he says, I will send a famine of the word. So with you and me, though we are still quite full physically, we are experiencing the famine of the word that Amos talks about, and that Joel begins to address here. Now, it does go on into a physical famine, and that's the danger 
if we don't wake up and pay heed to the spiritual famine that is occurring and what God is trying to tell us in it, then we are in great danger of going on into the physical famine. If we don't learn now, we learn then. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And howl, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. Are we so spiritually drunk and staggering around as a, in the church as a whole that we have trouble seeing clearly what God is doing, of understanding? And that's what Hosea reminded us of right at the last verse of his book. Be sure you understand. Don't blindly wander around in spiritual drunkenness not able to walk a straight line. How you drinkers of wine because of the new wine. Now is that the new doctrines perhaps that have occurred? That some have begun to be blinded by and spiritually drunk by and losing their way, staggering down the street? And God says he's going to cut that off. Don't we know that old wine is better? Isn't that what the apostles told us to do? Is go back to the faith once delivered? Not accept this new wine that is being poured before us and making us drunk? <laughs> now maybe the physical nation around us is just drunk on booze. And uh, they can't see beyond the nearest bar. But that's a different deal that God is going to deal with as we get on through this book. But spiritual drunkenness is a great danger for you and me. So a nation or a people or a heathen country has come up upon my land strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he has the cheek teeth of a great lion. He has laid my vine waste. Well, God's vine is his church. The vine that he's preparing first the first truths. Now the rest of the vine he'll deal with later on. But haven't we seen a great lion come in the church of God and begin to destroy and to ravage and to chew up God's people? Let's go back to Isaiah 5 and tie this together a little bit. To Isaiah 5, I have referred to this in the past, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on uh, 5 itself. But the story here is that God planted a vineyard on a fruitful hill. And that no matter what he did, it seemed to produce wild grapes down in verse, uh, verse 2. And then he says, what more could I have done to my vineyard? He gave it the truth. He did everything he could for us. And yet we weren't producing the kind of fruits that God wanted. So then he goes into a story here to show how Many houses, he changes the analogy a little bit, spiritual houses are going to be torn down. And how he's going to destroy the feasts in verse 12. They don't, we don't do it right. And it talks in verse 21 about woe to them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They think they see where they're going, but woe to them. But then he begins to tie it together here. And this is the part that I wanted to tie with Joel particularly. In the end of the book, verse 26, 
and he will lift up an ensign to the nations from far and will hiss to them from the end of the earth and they shall come with speed swiftly and he uses the same type of imagery that Joel does none shall be weary nor stumble among them none shall slumber nor sleep neither shall the girdle of their loins be loose nor the latchet of their shoes be broken whose arrows are sharp and so on and so forth same kind of language Joel uses to describe the day of the Lord and the coming destruction on the world but the point again that I want us to get is that as soon as he talks about the destruction of his vineyard and the houses being torn down he begins to talk about Joel type language the one follows on the heels of the other so if you're not already a little bit scared of what God is doing just hang on a little while because this is going to get far far worse I think what he's saying here by putting these contexts together is that as soon as I get done scattering my church and begin gathering that remnant back I am going to unleash my fury on the whole world he's, he's putting these events together in the context so if you want to know when this is all coming to a head when the destruction on the church is finished the other is ready to start that should get our attention but that's what Joel is about and Isaiah wrote uh, just shortly apparently after Joel wrote now while we're back here well I was back there and then I flipped back over but uh, let's go back to Isaiah 6 for a moment I want to continue just a brief chapter outline here uh, in Isaiah to show what is occurring he uses Joel's language here in the end of chapter 5 and then in chapter 6 in the year that King Uzziah died I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple so God is dealing with the church here we are the temple of God verse 5 then said I speaking of Isaiah woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips what can I do says Isaiah verse 8 I heard the voice of the Lord saying whom shall I send and who will go for us then said I here am I send me and boy did he because you go through the rest of the book of Isaiah and there's some pretty powerful messages here that God used Isaiah to show but notice what he tells him to do this is toward the beginning of Isaiah and it's right after he's talking about the destruction of the church as a prelude to the day of the Lord and he said go and tell this people hear you indeed but understand not and see you indeed but perceive not make the heart of this people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and convert and be healed it's not God's purpose to convert right now beyond a few many were called few are being chosen then said I Lord how long now isn't this a question we all ask how long is this going to go on and Psalm says no man among us knows how long in terms of years I think is what is implied there but he tells us about conditions here and he answers Isaiah's question I said how long 
And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitants, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Forsaking of God. But notice, But yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return, and shall be eaten as a teal tree, and as an oak, whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves. So the holy seed shall be the substance thereof. So God apparently is going to save 10% of the holy seed which he is presently called. A remnant, in other words. We'll see that word remnant come up over and over again before we're done with this series. So how long? Until the destruction on the church is complete and only a remnant remains. You go to Haggai, and I won't take a lot of time with that at the moment, but it talks about the remnant returning and building the latter temple. So this is how long. Once this destruction of the church is left and only a 10% remnant of faithful people are still out there, then this thing is going to hit. I don't know how many are prepared. I see people trying to get prepared. I'm trying to get prepared to be spiritually ready. And I feel I have such a long way to go that it's almost impossible to consider sometimes. And yet on the other hand, God says that 10% will be faithful. And if this thing is going to last until, until he sorts that out. So we still have opportunity. I just don't know how long it will last. Well, what does that do? That puts pressure on me. Is that pressure good for me? I don't always like it, but it's good for me to be under that kind of pressure. And that's what the providence of God is really all about. Is it a good thing to see the church being scattered and destroyed, the temple knocked down in front of our very eyes? Well, it doesn't seem so, but it's wonderful. We're going to see that before we're done. What is happening to the church today is a wonderful thing. Is it wonderful that 98% of the people on this earth are going to die? That apparently is about the percentage. Only 100 million left, according to Daniel. Now that seems like a horrible, horrible thing. Billions of people dead when this is finished. But you know what? It's good. That's the point John has been making already in his series, and that's the point that Joel is going to make. Hosea, God will save. Joel, the Lord is God. Now what's so good about it? By the time this is finished, a faithful remnant of God's church is going to recognize that the Lord is God. And when those people go through three and a half years of the most horrible times that have ever been on this earth, when they come out on the other side of the millennium, they're going to say, the Lord is God. Then they'll be willing to listen. 
but they're not willing to listen today, and that's not good. Now, let's say 98% more or less of the population of this earth dies in this great tribulation. They're going to come up in the great white stone judgment. And their attitudes are going to be entirely different than they are today. They'll come up out of the ground saying, Wow! The Lord is God. We thought the beast was great. But it wasn't, and the beast was destroyed. So God will save all Israel, and God will save the whole church. They will have gotten that lesson out of all this. And that's good. That's how far the providence of God extends in all this. Now I may be walking on John's sermon, but it's right here in the context. And I want to make the point. <coughs> you see, we can go to chapter 8. A lot of people are worried about the New World Order and the rising beast and the Euro and all these things that we see happening, the economy of the world. And they're fearful. God say? So this is all going to come. Verse 7 of chapter 8, Now therefore, behold, the Lord brings up upon them the waters of the river, strong and many, even the king of Assyria, in all his glory. And what does God tell the nations of this world? Appreciate yourselves, you people, and you shall be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you far countries. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, and you shall be broken in pieces. Says it again. Take counsel together. Have a conspiracy. It shall come to naught. Speak the word, and it shall not stand. For God is with us. This, this is you and me. God is with us. Isaiah was one of God's. For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand. God said this very strongly to Isaiah and to the world then, and instructed me that I should not walk in the ways of this people, saying, Say you not a conspiracy, to all them to whom this people shall say a conspiracy. Neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid. Do we stick to our radio and our TV out of fear of what's coming? What, are, what is the desired response? Now, we should recognize what's coming. He tells us to keep an eye on the leaves on the trees and see that this thing is about to happen. Verse 13, Sanctify the Lord of hosts himself, and let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, it's so easy to say, Well, I love the Lord, but I fear the beast. <laughs> God doesn't say love the beast, but he says fear the Lord. Don't be afraid of the beast. <coughs> and he shall be for a sanctuary. Verse 15, many among them shall stumble and fall and be broken and be snared and be taken. That reminds me of Daniel where it says many of understanding will fall. 
All right, what's the key then? Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the law among my disciples. Obedience to God is critical in this time. Not fearing the beast, but keeping the law of God in his testimony, as written in the Bible. And I will wait upon the Lord that hides his face from the house of Jacob, and I will look for him. Does that remind you of Christ's Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom of God. Now we can be aware. I'm not saying we should not be aware. But don't fear. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and for wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts which dwells in Mount Zion. So the church is the key. Being a part of what God is doing right now is the key. And the leaders for the millennium, the bride of Christ, are a right now item. That's what God is concerned about. So you can have people come saying they have special messages and demonic things in verse 19. But verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. So God's word is the key right now in this terrible situation that is about to come and which is already upon the church. Now let's see, before we get... I had another thought there at the end of uh, Isaiah 8. I guess I didn't, it ends. But he goes on. I guess I was going to show in, in 9 and 10 and on through Isaiah then he begins to show a restitution of his people. So the great tribulation is coming and the destruction on the church right now is going to turn out to be a good thing. Hard for us to understand right now, but God is leading us in a certain direction. God is simply going to get our attention. What holds our attention now? What do we seek? What takes our time? Now we all have to work a certain amount of hours per week. We have to eat a certain amount of time. We have to shower and dress a certain amount of our time. But then we have a certain amount of so-called free time. Analyze your free time, brethren. What happens to your free time? Where does it go? Where does your attention take you? Is that attention on God? That's the message that Joel will get across to us. Is that our attention needs to be on God. And each one of us has to make that assessment of his own life. What happens to that time? Does it go to the cares of this life? All right, let's go back now to the book of Joel. Verse 9, The meat offering, the drink offering, is cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. So, what is happening? Our sins cut us off from God, Isaiah tells us. So, the meal, the body of Christ, the wine, the blood of Christ, is being cut off. 
because God cannot stand what he sees in the church. And therefore, we are not in grace in that sense. We're not in his good graces right now. And what he is doing is to return us to those good graces. So the priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. So this is speaking of the church ministry today. The field is wasted, the land mourns, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languishes. Be you ashamed, ministry. Howl, you vine dressers, for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. Whatever they seem to try to do does not work. Let's go out and preach the gospel. But nothing happens, or very little happens. I really feel that God, through Herbert Armstrong, called all basically he wanted to call. And from those he is choosing. Many are called, few are then chosen. And some feel that Herbert Armstrong did not finish his job, that they have to finish his job. I feel he finished his job. God worked on him and maybe even resurrected him or whatever happened there because he had to finish what he was doing. I don't know that he fully understood what he was doing. But God used him to call many people and to restore the truth. And he finished that job. Not that we aren't to continue learning, but that basic foundation is there. And God finished it through Herbert Armstrong, and he called many people through Herbert Armstrong. So now, if we go out and we try to do something, there may be a few that God calls at the eleventh hour. Maybe God is using some people right now to send out a message. I'm not saying, I'm not against what's happening here and there. But God is telling us here that not much will come of it. The harvest will not be there. God says he will take away the harvest. Verse 12, the vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, and so on. Joy is withered away from the sons of men, into verse 12. Is it a joy now, what we're going through? No, the joy has been removed in many respects. Now, we can still joy in God's truth. We can still joy in God to one degree or another. But the conditions around us are not really that joyful to consider. It's confusing. Gird yourselves and lament, you priests. Okay. Take this seriously, God tells the ministry. How, you ministers of the altar? That's, that's getting pretty serious. If you lay across the altar of God and how, because of what has happened. Come lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God. Sackcloth is humility, or represents humility. Do we see a ministry today overall that is clothed with humility? Or do we see one that's saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You must all follow me if you're going to a place of safety and into the kingdom of God. There's a lot of that going on. I'm the Philadelphian, you're a Laodicea. Is that clothed in humility? The drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. This is so so serious, God says. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry to the Lord. 
This is the position we are in today. Now, I gave a sermon on the book of Joel, tying it in with Acts 2, on uh, Pentecost, I believe it was, of 1997. And we went through some of this, and some of you will remember it, perhaps. John did call a fast, because we considered what Joel said, and he took very seriously the message that Joel has. And I think that's what should have been done. I'm not saying it should be done again necessarily right now, but we still need to be taking these things so very, very seriously. And we should personally be fasting and praying, and the ministers howling and crying out to God because of the deplorable state of the church, the sheep scattered and abused and starving and dying. Well, God says, sanctify a fast. Not just fast, but this is to be set aside, especially because these are grim and terrible times. Now, this is what is occurring just before the day of the Lord. We're going to get that down in chapter 2. So what is occurring with the ministry and with the church is the prelude, as we saw in other scriptures. What comes right after it is the day of the Lord, or all these terrible things that lead to the day of the Lord. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. So when we find ourselves in this condition, we know we're very, very close. And that should scare us very, very much. Because he told us in Isaiah 8, Fear the Lord. Is not the meat cut off before our eyes, verse 16? Yes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. The temple of God is not full of joy today. It's full of confusion, frustration, argument, division. The seed is rotten under their clods. The garners are laid desolate. The barns are broken down, for the corn is withered. How did the beast groan? How are we going to accomplish any great work under these conditions when God has sent this kind of spiritual condition upon us. The flocks of sheep are made desolate, verse 18. That's the people of God. O Lord, to you will I cry, for the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned all the trees of the field. Now mark that analogy he uses there, trees of the field. It's going to become important as we go on through this series, because trees can be easily viewed in the prophecies as churches. The churches of the field are going to be burned down. Isaiah 5, we just read where he talked about houses and vineyards. So there are various analogies. And they all show the vineyard destroyed, the trees cut down, the temple, not one stone left on another, and so on. So this is what is to occur just before the cataclysmic end of the age is upon us. The beasts of the field cry also to you, for the rivers of waters are dried up, the fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness. Amos 8, 12, 13 shows that people will wander here and there, seeking truth. But the famine of the word is upon them. And they have extreme difficulty finding strong words of God. So what does he say? Chapter 2, Below the trumpet in Zion, there's an alarm, warning, sound an alarm in my holy mountain. 
let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. We're supposed to be scared right now. Scared enough to do something. Not complacent, not going along saying, well, okay, we're, we're okay, we're in this organization or that organization. God says, tremble. For the day of the Lord comes, for it is nigh at hand. When you see the ministers howling over their flocks that have been taken away, as Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23 indicate would happen, then tremble, because the day of the Lord is at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong, there has not ever been the like. Neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. What is coming here is going to make what happened in Egypt seem like child's play, God says. They won't remember it. They'll remember this. A fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is as the Garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing shall escape them. This is imagery that is very similar to the book of Revelation. This is almost upon us. And then it goes on to describe how bad it's going to be. I won't get into all the detail of that. You can, can read it. Verse 10, The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? All right, now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty in verse 12. Therefore also now, says the Lord, turn you even to me with all your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and relents him of the evil. Who knows if he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him even a meat offering and a drink offering to the Lord your God. So he's talking to the church here. He's not talking to the people out here in the world who are concluded in unbelief. He's telling us to turn to God this way. So we need to assess what our so-called free time goes to. And turn to him with all our heart. See, spiritual preparedness is the key to the whole thing. Fearing the beast is not. Fearing God and preparing spiritually is. How do we know if God might turn and relent and bless the church? Now, we've already read that much, a majority probably of the church is not going to listen. They're not going to hear they will not understand what God is doing and probably go right on into the tribulation. Perhaps they'll wake up then. In fact, I think they will because I believe God is going to save most of the church before this is over. I mean, notwithstanding tares and various other things that weren't truly converted people in the, to begin with. But what will this do? We have pressure on us now and if we respond, as God says, who knows? Maybe he will save us. What does Matthew 24 say? Pray that you be accounted worthy to escape all these things. 
Zephaniah 2 says, Maybe if you respond properly and become meek and humble, you shall be hid. So it's all contingent upon our reaction. And that's what Joel is saying here. Maybe God will have mercy and hide us from this. Now, if we don't go to a place of safety, it doesn't mean we can't be in God's kingdom. But if we don't have the attitude that is right that Joel talks about here, we may not be taken away from these terrible physical things, and we may have to go on into them and repent under even greater pressure, both spiritual and physical pressure. But perhaps we can avoid that if we will turn and rend our hearts and not our garments. In other words, become truly humble and meek, teachable as little children. That's the attitude God is looking at. Not fussing and comparing ourselves among ourselves and fighting among ourselves, but becoming truly meek and seeking God with all our hearts. Then the love of God will be apparent. Because if we have a godly attitude, we'll start loving our brothers instead of putting them down and telling them that they're not as good spiritually as perhaps we might be. Then he gives another strong warning. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. God is so concerned about this, he says, put off your wedding here a little bit. You better get out here and consider what's going on. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and give not your heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, where is their God? The church of God is going to become very, very prominent in the next few years. And it is being laid waste now. It is very difficult for you and me to explain what the church is, who the church is, where God is working. And they say, well, they fell apart. God must not be with them. Where is their God? These are serious, serious times. I don't think we cry wolf, wolf, brethren. I think this is so serious that God repeats it over and over and over again because it's hard for us to get it. We can read these and it can be very, very serious to us and we can understand what maybe we need to do. But then we walk out and maybe it doesn't sit for very long. Maybe we pray harder for a day or two or three or a week, and then maybe we lapse and slack back into the cares of this world. That's why God tells us over and over and over again to take it seriously. Because time is very limited, I believe. And on the heels of what we are seeing happening in the church, the Bible is making very clear, is going to come the destruction in the day of the Lord. We say we're not ready. And I certainly don't feel I'm ready. 
But this period, this process of waking up and become spiritually attuned to God, to where our, when we wake up in the morning, we're thinking about these things, and we're thinking about God, and we're thinking about what we should be as opposed to what we are. And we go to bed at night, and that's on our mind, not the things of this world. And when we have free time, we want to get our nose in God's Word, the testimony in the law, and understand what it is that God wants us to be doing. Maybe over a period of time, if we're reminded enough by these scriptures, and if enough pressure is put on, we will begin to comprehend what it is God wants us to do. Every time the church splits, or a branch of the church splits, it gets people's attention, and they wonder what's going on and why. But it's all laid out in here so very, very clearly. So God wants us to know that he is God and he wants to be worshipped he wants our attention and he will get it so the ministry should be praying right now for God to spare his people verse 18 then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people if we really cry out with all our hearts, then he will answer and pity us. Yes, the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and you shall be satisfied therewith, and I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But he'll remove the destroyer, the northern army, as he goes on to, to say. Verse 21, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. When this is all said and done, it's going to turn out right. So even in the midst of this strong warning and plea, God gives us hope that if we will respond properly, He will again bless us. But we are going through all kinds of personal traumas and trials and turmoils. The church is going through all kinds of turmoils and crises. And that's all God wants us to do, brethren. He just wants us to yield. He just wants us to turn to Him. That's all He cares about. And those who do are going to be blessed. I'm going to show you in these scriptures before this series is over, God willing, that this is going to happen even before the millennium. God is going to begin to restore grace to the called out ones, to the first fruits, just prior to or at the time of the place of safety. They can be shown very conclusively from the scriptures themselves and the minor prophets how it's going to come about. He will hear us. He will begin to answer us. And then terrible destruction is going to come on the rest of the world. But we will have tasted God's grace. We will have tasted God's return and His blessing. And we'll be ready then to tell the rest of the world, Hey, God will bless you if you will obey because we will have tasted that great gift and the glory of God. That even is somewhat recognizable right here in the context of Joel. He says, Fear not, uh, verse 22, For the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree bears her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, church members, 
and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. Perhaps Passover time one of these years, when it's time. We're going to receive both the former and the latter rain. All the rain that normally is supposed to come in the course of a full year is going to come in the first month, he says. Showers of blessings. As he says, I believe it is in the end of Ezekiel 34. We read Ezekiel 34 and we look at the ministry today. We read Jeremiah 23 and we look at the ministry today. And it's a sad plight. But so seldom it seems we read the rest of those chapters which shows that if God is listened to and responded to, blessings will return. Showers of blessings, as he says in Ezekiel 34:26. The floor shall be full of wheat, and the fat shall overflow with wine and oil. And those scriptures are directly to the church and to the ministry that I just quoted. Verse 26, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Verse 27, and you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God. If Joel's name doesn't say it, this verse does. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams your young men shall see visions and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth blood and fire and pillars of smoke now this is what Peter thought was happening in Acts 2 and I think it was a minor fulfillment of this because God was showing where his people were. And could anyone in Jerusalem deny it? Thousands even believed it. And responded and repented and were converted. With just those few little miracles that occurred. I mean, Peter and John's shadow passing, healing people and so on. The veil of the temple rent in twain. Incredible things. Tongues of fire coming down on Pentecost. But that will pale into insignificance, just like the Exodus, compared to what God is about to do. And apparently it occurs before the day of the Lord is finished. Because he says he will pour this all out, and I will show wonders in the heavens. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. So God is going to begin to show dreams and visions and miracles and signs and wonders. Now you'd think everyone would respond, right? But on the other hand, the prince of the power of the air is going to do great signs and wonders as well. And this is going to become so confusing that even the very elect would be deceived if it were possible. So it's not an easy course. The people that do know their God will do exploits, Daniel says. Verse 32, And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. There's remnant again, just as we read back there, and I think it was Isaiah 6 or 7. For behold, in those days and in that time, when I shall bring again the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations. So he's going to begin gathering the church together 
And then he's going to call the people to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and we're going to have a battle royal, and this whole thing is going to be over. But the church is delivered first, gathered first. It's not until after that that he begins to gather Israel from all the nations in the millennium. But the leadership has to be gathered from the scattering that has occurred upon us. The church has to be put back together, and we're going to see that a little later on. Then he calls all the nations of the world to fight. Verse 10, beat your plowshares into swords, your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble yourselves, conspire, confederate, ally. And come, all you heathen, and gather yourselves together round about. God calls them to battle. And this is going to be the greatest battle that has ever been on the face of the earth. Verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon shall be darkened. We've read those. You want to be around when that happens, brethren? I like it when the sun comes up. I like it when the moon comes out. It would be awfully scary not to have the sun come up in the morning and be dark. I don't want to be there then. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of the children of Israel. I'll briefly refer to Haggai here, because he says there that he's going to put the church back together. And then at the end of the book of Haggai, he says he will shake the heavens and the earth. So God will deliver his people, and then he's going to shake the earth like a rag doll. Verse 17, So shall you know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall be no more strangers pass through. All that are in the church will pass under the rod. Only those who have responded and turned to their God with their hearts will be protected. The rest will go on into it. And of course, then it also refers to the millennium in which the new Jerusalem is going to come down at the beginning of the millennium and no more will an unholy person pass through Jerusalem. Verse 19, Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom shall be a desolate wilderness for the violence against the children of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. We'll see more about that in the book of Obadiah as we go on through here. Who are our enemies? But Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will cleanse their blood that I have not cleansed, for the Lord dwells in Zion. The Lord is God. 